it's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ends his presidential campaign just days ahead of New Hampshire. For Sunday, January 21st, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, we'll look at what DeSantis's departure means for the two remaining candidates in the race, former President Donald Trump and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. We'll also hear about the rescue of five kidnapped sisters in Nigeria. The payment of ransom no longer guarantees freedom. We'll look at what a declining population could mean for China, as well as the rest of the world over the coming decades. And we'll head to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean to a newly mapped massive habitat of deep sea coral. It's beautiful. It's amazing. There are mountains and canyons and miles long coral reefs. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended his Republican presidential campaign today, just ahead of the New Hampshire primary that takes place on Tuesday. This after coming in a distant second place in Iowa and failing to meet high expectations that he could pose a serious challenge to former President Trump. DeSantis says he's throwing his support to Trump. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. Early primary polls had suggested DeSantis was in a strong position to challenge Trump, and he and his allies amassed a political fortune well in excess of $100 million. But his campaign was hamstrung by missteps. He now turns to completing his second and final term as Florida governor, which ends in 2027. Israel's carried out more airstrikes in Lebanon today. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, experts are increasingly worried that violence in the region is getting out of hand. Israel's military said it struck a number of targets in Lebanon, including an operational command center for Hezbollah, an Iran-backed group. The strikes come just a day after another airstrike killed five members of Iran's elite Revolutionary Guard Corps in Damascus, Syria. Iran accused Israel. Israel's military declined to comment. Shortly after that strike, missiles and rockets pounded an Iraqi airbase used by American troops. U.S. officials say that attack was by Iranian-backed militants in Iraq. Ali Vayas is with the International Crisis Group. We are still in a spiral of escalation. The risks of it getting out of control are, are higher than ever. For now, neither Iran nor Israel seem ready to back down. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Wall Street investors are hoping to build on some strong gains. The S&P 500 is at a record high. As NPR's David Gura reports, it'll be another busy week for corporate earnings. Netflix and Tesla are among the companies scheduled to update Wall Street on their recent performance, along with several major airlines, including United and American. There's also a lot of new economic data, including reports on durable goods and new home sales, and a preliminary look at what growth was like in the fourth quarter of 2023. Many economists have revised their forecasts, given stronger-than-expected retail sales numbers. On Friday, we'll get an update of the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation gauge, what will be a critical data point for policymakers ahead of their first meeting of the year, which will start on January 30th. The Fed is expected to keep interest rates where they are. David Gura, NPR News, New York. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu traveled to New Hampshire this weekend to promote a writing campaign for President Biden leading up to Tuesday's primary. Biden is not on the New Hampshire ballot. Yesterday, Wu spoke with small gatherings of voters in Nashua and Manchester. We need a leader with the temperament, with the tenacity, and with the team around them to move us forward. We have that leader now. President Biden is not on the New Hampshire ballot after he convinced the National Democratic Party to make South Carolina the first primary state. New Hampshire responded by deliberately scheduling its election before South Carolina. Talks wrapped up late this afternoon between Newton school teachers and the school committee. It's unclear whether Newton teachers will return to the classroom tomorrow. The Newton Teachers Association spokesperson says they plan to make an announcement about that later tonight. A judge ordered the teachers to end their strike today. Even though teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts, there have been several in the last year. Newton canceled school last Friday, the first day of the job action. They have been without a contract since August. They're at odds with the mayor over school funding. Governor Healy this week will unveil her budget proposal for the next fiscal year. Among the items Healy is proposing, expanded early child care. Healy said she is not looking for any statewide tax or fee increases to pay for her initiatives. Tomorrow, Governor Healy plans to ask the legislature to give cities and towns the power to increase local taxes on meals, lodging, and impose an additional motor vehicle excise surcharge. Well, if you're planning to use Route 3 between Burlington and the New Hampshire state line, be ready for intermittent closures starting at midnight and lasting all week during the overnight hours. The Massachusetts Transportation Department is describing the disruption as short-term to replace overhead signs across the highway. Starlit skies tonight, temperatures in the mid-teens. Another sunny day in store for us tomorrow, warming up to the mid-30s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. In just a few days, the New Hampshire primary will be in the history books. But in a Republican presidential race that has been weird from the start, another big twist. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has now decided to suspend his 2024 presidential bid. The race is now between former President Donald Trump and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. NPR's Franco Ordonez and Tamara Keith are on the ground in Manchester, New Hampshire, for the final weekend of campaigning, and they join me now to give us a sense of where things stand with these latest developments and what this could mean for the Republican nominating contest. Hey there. Hello, Scott. Hey, Scott. So let's start with the breaking news. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, ends his campaign for the presidency today. He bet it all on Iowa. He finished a distant second. And up until today's announcement, he had really almost ignored New Hampshire, focusing on the next big contest, South Carolina. Franco, even in the recent context of DeSantis's fade, this is this is a pretty shocking ending for somebody who entered the race with a sense that he could supplant Trump. 
Yeah, Scott, I mean, it was really an amazing collapse just from a year ago. I mean, he was supposed to be the heir apparent to Trump. He led in some head-to-head polls. I mean, he was raising a ton of money. He had a great pitch that he he had Trump's policies, but not the rough edges, not the drama, not the palace intrigue. But DeSantis's campaign, uh, as we all know, just had so many issues, so many problems. Specifically, he just never felt comfortable with voters. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. Yeah, and like you said, he banked everything on Iowa. He went to all the 99 counties. But Trump, you know, really essentially destroyed him there by 30 percent in points. And he made no investments in New Hampshire, so he really had nowhere to go. So, Tam, a familiar script here. Uh, Donald Trump spends a year or so really attacking a candidate, ridiculing him, often personally. Then that candidate get, drops out of the race and endorses Trump, but clears the field at the same time for Nikki Haley, who now remains as the only Trump challenger. Any early sense which remaining candidate this could help more? Well, Ron DeSantis is much more of a candidate in the Trump mold than Nikki Haley is in the Trump mold. So um, it it looks very much like Donald Trump, the former president, is much more likely to benefit from DeSantis getting out of the race. A new University of New Hampshire poll out today says only about 30 percent of DeSantis's voters had Haley as their second choice. Um, so this does become a two-person race. This is what she said she she wanted, but it doesn't really help her, um, though it will clearly define the perilousness of her path forward, the difficulty yeah. of her path, um, because uh, all of the polls in this state indicate that she is trailing Trump. DeSantis getting out isn't going to change that. And we're going to get back to Haley's path forward and the, and, the, and the race between Haley and Trump in a moment. But Tam, first, like, let's just zoom out a little bit. In the video that DeSantis posted dropping out of the race, he did take one quick swipe at Nikki Haley, but he really talked about Trump like Trump is the last candidate standing, like he's the de facto nominee already. And that is the latest twist in a race that has felt so strange, so different in so many different ways. Tam, you've covered a lot of New Hampshire primaries at this point. I know you've had the the maple bacon at, at the Red Arrow Diner <laughs> a few times now, as have I. But I mean, as you can, as you were in the state this weekend, just how different did New Hampshire feel? Well, the legendary mug of bacon lives on. However, the the feel of the New Hampshire primary is just different and and in several ways one there isn't this large field of candidates i'm thinking about 2016 it was still a pretty crowded field on the republican side and quite competitive on the democratic side um going back to to, uh, 2020 uh, it was super competitive among the democrats and there were a ton of candidates still in and what that meant is that there were events all over the state Mm -hmm. and voters could get real uh, close contact with the candidates Uh, in new hampshire this week it was like a ratio of 10 to 1 of journalists to uh, to real voters. Wow. Um, and it was hard for the candidate to even get to uh, to even get to the voters because there were so many reporters, uh, you know, like falling all over each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a very different situation because the field is so small and one of the candidates is not even doing the traditional New Hampshire thing. Former President Trump is holding rallies. Uh, he's not, uh, you know, going to to the Red Arrow or other diners and and you know spending time uh, getting to know people. Yeah. I, I talked to a voter who said, you know, I 
I believe that I have to meet every single person before I vote on them. Uh, well, um, that's just not the experience that's happening this yeah. time. Well, let's talk about Haley specifically. We have talked all week about how New Hampshire may be just a do or die state for Haley. If she can't beat Trump here with the amount of independent voters in the state, with the poll numbers here compared to other states, it just seems unlikely to happen. Did either of you get that sense of urgency from Haley herself at her events this weekend? Yeah. At one point, I overheard her telling a voter, quote, we have a country to save. We have to get it done. Um, and certainly her campaign is dumping money into the state and and her allied super PACs. So uh, Haley and her allies have spent $31 million on ads in the state. They are blanketing the airwaves, uh, including an ad from uh, the, the popular Republican governor of the state, Governor Sununu, saying, Haley is the only one who can stop Trump. Let's change the narrative of this race. Let's do it right here, right now. Um, so there is that urgency. She's mm -hmm. spending... Uh, on ads in the state uh, about twice as much as Trump but um but there but, but the applause at her events is polite whereas the applause at a Trump rally is the same big roar that you always see at a Trump yeah. rally Franco? Yeah, I'll just I'll just add that you know I mean while those while those numbers are much smaller at Haley's events I will I will say that the people I've spoke to are definitely feel the urgency they're taking it extremely serious and they absolutely understand the magnitude of their vote on Tuesday I mean I spoke with Mike Kornblum he's of Londonbury I mean he told me that he sees this vote likely determining not only the nominee for the party but also the future of the Republican Party going forward. I think it's critical. I think we're, we're looking at very, very different people in Donald Trump versus virtually anybody else you would compare him to. He's a unique character, and depending on your point of view about that, I think he's either a savior or an incredible threat. And, you know, just to build on what Tams was saying about the crowds, I mean, I've talked to a lot of veterans of the New Hampshire primaries who told me that, you know, there at this time on Sunday before the primary, there are thousands attending these rallies. You're not seeing thousands um, at a Haley rally right now. Mm -hmm. And that just puts so much more weight on these independent voters, or as they're called here in New Hampshire, the undeclared uh, voters, because they, as we've reported, are allowed to vote in either the Republican par primary or the Democratic primary, but they're likely to pick the Republican primary because that's where the action is. Uh, um, and that's how that's yeah. what Haley's going to need to win. In the couple minutes we have left, I do want to touch on two, two themes that have emerged from the campaigning this weekend. Franco, it did jump out to me that even as Trump has this big lead, he seems to have fueled feel threatened enough by Haley over the past few days that he's returned to a tried and true Trump playbook of painting his opponent as un-American. Yeah, I mean, it's really nothing new for Trump. You know, his attacks are particularly cutting online where he's kind of mangled Haley's name, highlighting, you know, her Sikh Indian heritage. He's also actually promoted these false claims that she's not eligible to run for president because her parents were not citizens when she was born. But as of course, she was born, she was born in the United States and therefore she's a naturalized citizen and she's eligible to be president. As you note, I mean, this is not uh, necessarily a new thing for Trump. I mean, he's obviously he cut his teeth uh, politically, kind of backing those birther conspiracy theater theories, pardon me, against former President Barack Obama. And it's really just, you know, lies uh, that many saw as a racist dog whistle. Yeah. 
Tam, another another moment happened this weekend, and, and Haley attacked Trump for it. And this is something that the Biden campaign seized on based on the narrative of the, the already happening and in many ways general election. Tell us about this mix up that, that, that Trump seemed to, to mix uh, Nikki Haley up with former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, it happened Friday night at a smaller rally that Trump held in Concord. And he was delivering one of his usual rants about January 6th, the Nancy Pelosi. But then he said Nikki Haley instead of Pelosi. By the way, they never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley. You know, they do. You know, they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it because of. Lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. It's a lot of falsehoods there in addition to the wrong Mm -hmm. name. Haley responded to that uh, saying that, uh, you know, essentially uh, Trump uh, may not be fit to serve. We can't have someone else that we question whether they're mentally fit to do this. We can't. Now, the and that was one of her biggest applause lines. Now, the Trump campaign is downplaying the glitch. And just to put a whole, you know, an exclamation point on that whole cycle, Trump then at his rally last night claimed or boasted or whatever you want to call it, that he had gotten another cognitive test and aced it. Echoes of, of a Trump news cycle of many years ago there. Uh, about 30 seconds left. Tam, I'll, I'll, I'll put this to you. If if Trump wins on Tuesday in New Hampshire, is that effectively it for this campaign? Yes. I I don't see uh, how it isn't over after that. Nikki Haley is promising that she plans to compete, uh, not just in New Hampshire, but in South Carolina and build momentum from there. Uh, But the polls show her way behind in South Carolina. And Trump has been boasting about all the support he has from the uh, Republican establishment in her home state. If you want to get the nomination, you need to win a state. That's NPR's Tamara Keith and Franco Ordonez covering the New Hampshire primary for us. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, a senior Ukrainian official makes the case for increased aid from the U.S. and the landmark Roe v. Wade abortion ruling turns 51. Ask your smart speaker to play WBUR when you wake up. And thanks. We're looking at starlit skies for tonight, mid-teens. Tomorrow, another sunny day. Temperatures in the mid-30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis is dropping out of the race for the Republican nomination. This after he came in a distant second in Iowa. And he's endorsing former President Donald Trump all days ahead of the New Hampshire primary that takes place on Tuesday.
Israel carried out more airstrikes in Lebanon today, including an operational command center for Hezbollah, the Iran-backed group. This is worry grows that the Israel-Hamas war could spread around the region. And at least 27 people are dead, more than a dozen injured after Ukraine allegedly shelled Donetsk, a Russian-occupied city in the eastern part of the country, according to local authorities. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Nigerian police and armed forces have secured the release of five sisters who were taken hostage earlier this month and held for ransom, alongside their father, uncle, and another sister. Their father was released as well, though the sixth sister and their uncle were ultimately murdered by the kidnappers. The five sisters' story gripped the country, as NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports from Lagos. Let's begin with the disturbing news about rising insecurity in the... The kidnap of six sisters has dominated news bulletins in Nigeria for weeks. It's ignited outrage at their plight and an epidemic of abductions across the country in recent years. One of the sisters, 21-year-old Nabiha, was killed by the kidnappers who demanded almost $70,000. Then on Sunday, police announced that five of the sisters were rescued by security forces and reunited with the al family, a rare end to a brutal episode. But for thousands of victims kidnapped in recent years, it often ends differently. The payment of ransom no longer guarantees freedom. Confidence Isaiah McCarry is a security analyst at a firm called SBM. He says that the kidnap for ransom industry has ballooned in Nigeria and that kidnappers have become more and more brazen. In the past, it used to be 80 to 90 percent chance that once you pay ransom, you're let go. Now it's as low as 50 to 60 percent. In some instances, kidnappers even abduct the people who deliver the ransoms or refuse to free victims, even when money exchanges hands. The kidnap of the sisters, who range from teenagers to young women in their 20s, sparked an online crowdfund campaign as the situation grew desperate. There is a law that prevents payment of uh, ransom. But Nigerian Defence Minister Mohamed Badaru Abubakar denounced it. So it is very sad for people to go over the internet, radio, asking for donation to pay ransom. This will only worsen the situation. Authorities say that victims should report abductions to the police, but victims rarely do amid a lack of faith that security forces will intervene. The freedom of the five sisters is a rare case where they have. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. The most populous nation in the world, China, is losing people. For the second year in a row, China's population has declined. Birth rates reached a new low, and death rates were the highest they'd been in 50 years. According to the country's National Bureau of Statistics, the total number of people in China dropped by over 2 million. And for some context, that is nearly the population of Houston, Texas. 
This shift has some people worried about the long-term health of the country and its economy. And to help us better understand these numbers, we are joined by Wong Fung, a professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for joining the show. You're welcome, Scott. So I know that you take a, a more optimistic view on this than, than many other observers. But before we get into that specifically, let's just explain what's going on here. What are some of the causes of China's population decline? Uh, well, the accelerating de decline is driven by three forces. The first is actually what we call a demographic echoing effect. That is, uh, the smaller births we've been seeing in the last few years, a decade or so, is a reflection of the smaller birth cohorts of the parents' generation. Yeah, there are fewer children being born due in part to the, uh, the one-child policy and other factors. Now there are fewer adults having fewer children. It seems like it's kind of the, the next step. Exactly. So we have fewer uh, adults reaching the uh, childbearing age. But that's mm -hmm. not, the, I think, the most interesting part. The most interesting parts are the next two. One is that... Um, in the last three decades, uh, young people, men and women, especially women, are postponing and leaving marriage. And then the third factor in terms of low birth rate is even for those married women and men, uh, they are choosing either not having children or staying with only one child. So combined, mm -hmm. you have this declining birth number year after year. Many major countries are looking at a similar dip in population over the coming decades. Uh, is this is this trickier to figure out in China, though, a country of so many people and a country that has seen such explosive growth in so many different ways over the previous decades? Well, it, it is different uh, for China. I do think so uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, it's the economic growth model, how China has been able to achieve this spectacular economic growth in the last 40 years or so. And that, as noted by many, is driven largely by a young, productive, and exploited uh, labor force, uh, mostly migrants from rural areas. And that source is depleting. So in terms of the economic growth model, where the growth comes from, uh, this important source uh, is weakening and if not ending. And number two is the way that the Chinese uh, political legitimacy is based. And that is uh, the government has uh, made the promise to support the large number of elderly and um, to be the new paternalistic redistributor. So people are expecting that, especially the large number of elderly or soon to be elderly who are parents of the only children generation. And um, they are expecting that government to play an important role in supporting the old age. And with economic slowing down, with uh, the decline in government revenues, and uh, this could pose a political uh, challenge to uh, the power holders in China, uh, if they could not deliver uh, the promise that uh, they once made. We mentioned there's been a lot of concern about about the negatives of, of a decline in population and that you have written that there's a more optimistic way to look at it. Can you can you walk us through some of your reasons for optimism? What you think are some of the positives of this this possible trend? Uh, we are looking at the healthiest 
and the most educated uh, generation in China, especially I think in this case in China, things have happened so fast. Uh, the rapid expansion in higher education and the continued improvement uh, in population health. So we are really not looking at the same population in China today as the population 40 years ago, let alone 80 years ago. So uh, we have a different population to begin with. Uh, and also we're already seeing this with uh, the new technologies and the most recently with the hype on AI. A lot of the repetitive, unpleasant work in the past that have to be done by real human beings uh, now can actually be done quite efficiently and in inexpensively by the means of technology. And uh, also very importantly, uh, we have to remember uh, we as a hum humanity with the whole world and in China certainly included, have produced so much. There's so much wealth in the society and we can do a lot with uh, redistribution, both across different income groups, but also across generations. So we don't need to continue to produce, to pursue GDP growth. We have produced so much, there's enough to go around. That is Wang Feng, a professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks so much. You're most welcome. Now we want to take you to the bottom of the ocean, where scientists have discovered what they now characterize as the largest deep sea coral habitat to be mapped and documented. That's the sound of the Alvin submersible splashing down in the Atlantic Ocean in 2018. The dive was part of a multi-year exploration of an area roughly the size of Wisconsin, about 100 miles off the East Coast. Stretching from Miami, Florida to Charleston, South Carolina, this underwater world is a rolling seascape of coral mountains. The scale of this habitat sheds some light on the impact that industrial activities like drilling and mining, could have as they reach deeper and deeper underwater. Eric Cordes is a biology professor at Temple University. He's one of the authors of a new study published in the journal Geomatics, which mapped this expansive coral habitat. And he's even been down there himself in a submersible. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. I, I want to start with that last point before we get to the broader study. You've been down to this area yourself. What's it look like? How deep did you go? I have. It's a pretty amazing site. It is about half a mile down. We started at about 900 meters depth and climbed up the side of one of these large coral mounds, almost 100 plus meters, which is, you know, 300, 350 feet up to the top of the coral mound. And it was just, it was live coral everywhere we could look once we got up to the top. I mean, I think a lot of us can envision uh, more shallow coral. What what does it look like at that depth? What were you seeing with your eyes? The deep water coral reefs actually look a lot like the shallow water oh, okay. coral reefs. It's the same kinds of coral and the same family, not the same species. But this coral that forms most of this habitat is white, and it's naturally white because they don't have the photosynthetic algae in them that the shallow water corals do were much too deep for light to penetrate. Mm -hmm. But then there are other corals. There's a really high diversity here, all sorts of different colors, fish swimming around. I mean, it, it is a coral reef. So there's a lot of life down there despite the depth. There is. Yeah, there's actually really high diversity. 
rivaling that of the shallow water coral reefs, but the animals down here, because food is more scarce, they tend to be smaller and a little bit harder to find. Why is this area of such interest to researchers? Well, this study started when this area was under consideration for oil and gas leasing, and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management funded a good portion of this study along with the U.S. Geological Survey and NOAA, which is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And so we were looking at this area to find these potentially sensitive habitats to make sure that if our industrial use were to move into this area that we would try and avoid as many potential impacts as possible. And then that gets to the broader paradox here, because when you talk about deep sea mining, a lot of the interest in that has to do with electric cars, other green technology aimed at lowering the broader carbon footprint, but obviously has its own environmental concerns. You mentioned that was the impetus for beginning this research. Where does that possibility stand right now? Well, deep sea mining is something that has been discussed for a long time, but the technology is finally to the point where we can begin to go to these places where these metals are very common. There are some reserves of these metals on the Blake Plateau where this study takes place and where these coral reefs lie. The biggest deposits are out in the central Pacific, almost three to four miles deep. But even there, there's an incredible diversity of life and life that only survives on these metal deposits, the manganese and polymetallic nodules that are down there. It's a resource that we obviously need to transition our economy and our energy systems for the battery technology that needs to come online for a lot of the electronics. But we need to be sure that as our industries move into deeper and deeper water, that we're doing the exploration in advance so we know what kinds of impacts we're having. Otherwise, we're sending out these vehicles and we're going to tap these resources before we even understand what's down there and what possible repercussions that could have. You've been down there. You've mapped and explored this area that most of us are never going to get a chance to see with our own eyes. I mean, in the end, what do you want people to know about this part of the ocean that you've seen? What's something that you want to get across that you wish you could just convey to somebody who hasn't been there and a submersible themselves? Well, people have this concept of the deep sea as this vast, featureless, muddy, mm-hmm. dark, scary place. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of those, you know, strange fluorescent fish and things like that in my mind. Right. Those do exist, but you see those really blown up in the movies like they're going to start running around eating people. <laughs> and really, most of those fit in the palm of your hand. It's really not a scary place. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's uh, amazing. There are mountains and canyons and miles long coral reefs down there. And it's really an amazing place. That's Eric Cordez, a biology professor at Temple University. Thanks so much. Thank you. All Things Considered from NPR News. It's late January now, so how are those New Year's resolutions coming? One of the most common goals is to improve your health, get fit, exercise, just move more. 
It's also common to stop after a few weeks or maybe even just one workout. For whatever reason, we just can't keep going. Maybe our bodies have changed from aging or injury or illness or other ways. And that's pretty normal. Reporter Asia Drain spoke with a personal, a personal trainer who redefines exercise and says it's about meeting ourselves where we are. As a lifelong dancer, I was devastated to be couch-ridden for months after a back injury. But while scrolling through TikTok, I found a personal trainer who really spoke to me. With a chronic illness, being able to move your body may not always be the easiest. It may not move in the way you want it to. It may tire quickly. But moving with intention makes a difference in your physical, mental, and emotional well-being. That's Samantha Salvaggio, an NASM-certified personal trainer, patient leader, and behavior change specialist. Salvaggio was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and had to change her relationship with exercise. My injury is temporary and vastly different from her lifelong condition. But Salvaggio's insights made me realize that no matter what your condition, our bodies all go through changes at some point. She says... To design an adaptable fitness plan, put the big goals on the back burner and focus on the smaller ones day to day. If you're focusing on just on the end result, it can be really hard to see like the small progress that you're making throughout that can really just serve as motivation versus just focusing on the end result and then being discouraged that you're not there. Silvaggio says think about it like this. One step at a time can still get you to your goal. If you just take off a sheet of paper towel off of a roll every day. You're not going to really notice any change. Like, it's so small you won't notice. But then over the course of a month, you're going to run out of paper towels. We know that the key to progress in fitness is consistency. So to stay motivated, try tracking all of your movement activities, not just your workouts. Physical activity is defined as any movement, not just exercise workouts, according to the National Health Interview Survey. Cleaning the house, running errands, gardening, going for a run, lifting weights, it all matters and it all adds up. Salvaggio kept a little planner where she wrote down everything. Being able to like look back that week or that month and see all these little times that I moved just was really empowering because it's like, wow, that's a promise I'm keeping to myself. And it was more motivating to like continue. Before you know it, those small goals become the big ones you had sitting on the back burner this whole time. And even if you have setbacks, Salvaggio says when you're trying to bounce back, don't try to overdo it. Start small. Let's just do five minutes and start and then see how we feel after that. Sometimes I'll go for another five minutes and then end up stopping Sometimes I end up doing the whole thing, and then other times it's just like, no, this is not the thing today. And that's okay. You'll get to where you want to go, but you have to meet yourself where you are first. For NPR News, I'm Asia Drain. LifeKit has more ideas about how to start your new year off right. You can check out LifeKit's Resolution Planner. You can choose areas of your life you want to focus on, and the tool will guide you to some of LifeKit's best tips on that topic. You can find it at npr.org slash new year. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. I'm Josie Guarino. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, we'll have a conversation with E. Jean Carroll about her successful lawsuit against Donald Trump, who was found liable for sexual abuse and defamation. Stay with us. That's coming up in about 20 minutes on the radio and the WBUR app. Clear skies tonight. Temperatures drop into the mid-teens. Sunshine for tomorrow, warming up to the mid-30s. We have 23 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The Republican nomination race is now down to just two, former President Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. This after Ron DeSantis today suspended his campaign days ahead of the New Hampshire primary that takes place on Tuesday. He's endorsing Trump. Antony Blinken is heading to Africa, his fourth trip to the region since becoming Secretary of State. He will focus on trade and infrastructure. And Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will lead a ceremony tomorrow to consecrate a new Hindu temple that was built on the site of a historic mosque that was destroyed by Hindu mobs in 1992, sparking protests that left 2,000 people dead. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours, SmartMouth mouthwash, toothpaste, and more can be found nationwide at stores or at smartmouth.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. In occupied Ukraine, there is a quiet transformation taking place. Russia now controls some 18% of Ukrainian territory. And behind the trenches and the mines and the mortars of the ongoing war's battlefront, the Kremlin is working hard on many different fronts to incorporate these areas into Russian politics and culture. And with aid from the United States and Western Europe in doubt, some people are worried that these parts of the country could slip away for good. David Lewis is one of them. He's been keeping close tabs on what's happening in occupied Ukraine and recently wrote about it in Foreign Affairs. Lewis is a professor at the University of Exeter, where he teaches about post-Soviet politics. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you. You know, we know a lot about the violence and the human rights abuses that are taking place along the front lines of this war, but you say that there is an administrative occupation taking place in the parts that have been annexed by Russia. What do you mean by that? Yes, alongside all the military, the soldiers, the tanks that you see as the images of occupation, there's also a whole army of bureaucrats that are uh, taking on this task of really trying to incorporate all these lands into the Russian state. And that means transforming their laws, introducing new tax systems, uh, the very sort of everyday bureaucracy of life, including 
weddings, death certificates, car registrations, um, health insurance, pension payments, all the stuff that the state provides is now being provided, obviously, by the Russian state. And that means a complete transformation of the local governance systems, the local bureaucracies, and that produces also a whole new range of levers for Russia to ensure compliance from the local population. And one of the details in your article is the fact that you need a Russian passport to access a lot of these basic government services. Yeah, so uh, quite incredible, really, rollout of Russian passports. Um, Some around 3 million they've rolled out uh, since the beginning of the war to local residents, and these uh, are... Uh, given out without really much choice for locals, because if you want to open a bank account, run a business, get welfare payments, do almost anything really in relation to the state, then you need a Russian passport. As as best as you can tell, and again, talking about a lot of people here, so there's probably not one clear direction or another, but uh, how is this being received by people who live in this parts of Ukraine? Is it just a feeling of, we're here, we're occupied, we have to go along? Are there any sort of signs of pushback in any sort of way that you can follow? Well, of course, that's where the violence comes in. Any kind of pushback is met with extreme repression by the Russian authorities. Uh, Worth bearing in mind that a lot of people have left. So those who are perhaps most likely to be activists, most likely to be opposed to the Russian rule in some kind of very active way. Um, Many of those have fled these territories, particularly younger people, professionals. But then for most people, it's just a case of survival. I think, you know, there's not um, any great sort of upsurge of pro-Russian feeling, certainly. But uh, people have very little choice. Not everybody can leave. And therefore, they're trying to simply get by um, and survive and hope that they see better days. So you have a lot of detail about the bureaucratic ways that that, that Russia is establishing itself here. Uh, what about the education system? I thought there were a lot of interesting examples of that. So again, Russia's intent really on uh, sort of re-socializing young people. Most schools in the region had gone over to Ukrainian language education. Um, this is a part of the country where quite a lot of people still speak Russian at home. But more and more young people um, have become really Ukrainian speakers over the last few years. Russia's put a stop to all that. Um, all schools are now back on uh, Russian language education, and they're all are really teaching according to the Russian curriculum, which is a particularly uh, sort of narrow curriculum, including a new Russian history textbook, for example, which describes the Ukrainian state as a state run by neo-Nazis, uh, all the kind of falsehoods and propaganda that you get from the Russian state are now being taught in these Ukrainian schools. So this is a huge change in education for young people, but it is a long-term strategy for Russia to re-educate the youth, to try and um, force them to adopt Russian cultural, political uh, and social views over time. And um, uh, we've seen them be relatively successful at doing that in other areas, such as in the Donbass and indeed in Crimea as well. So they have quite a lot of experience in this. And you, and you note that, that there's even a heavy hand in pop culture and arts in terms of what, what is allowed to, to be performed at, at live theaters, the uh, the movie theaters, what, 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 what films they're playing. What is the larger strategy here? Is it to be able to make an argument that the people who live here feel Russian or is it to change opinions over time so that if, if, if there were ever negotiation over the fate of these areas, Russia could say, look, these, these people are part of our country. Like, what, what is the thinking of the goal four or five years down the line? 
I mean, the Russian, essentially the Russian view is that they don't accept that these people really are Ukrainians. Um, they claim that they are effectively Russians who've been at various stages sort of brainwashed into uh, speaking or, or claiming to have Ukrainian identity. So Russians are trying to put the clock back, really, um, and uh, change uh, people's identities through these cultural, educational instruments. Culture is a very important one, uh, and above all, it means uh, imposing the Russian language. Uh, Ukrainian is uh, really sort of expelled from the public sphere, and Russia's been very active at pulling down all sorts of Ukrainian symbols, uh, anything that really links the region to Ukraine or reminds people they might be part of Ukraine has been destroyed by the Russians in a very rapid and very brutal way. And all of this, of course, is happening in a moment when Ukraine is, is rightly worried about military aid drying up from the United States, from Western Europe. There's an increasingly hostile climate to more aid for Ukraine in Congress. I and mean, here's uh, the House Speaker, Republican Mike Johnson, the other day uh, at the White House after a meeting with President Biden about this. We understand that there's concern about uh, the safety, security, sovereignty of Ukraine, but the American people have those same concerns about our own domestic sovereignty and our safety and our security. How concerned are officials in Ukraine about, you know, given given the stalemate of the war, the, the possible uh, drying up of funds and all of this bureaucratic work to, to entrench these regions uh, in Russia, how much of a real concern is it that these parts of Ukraine are just lost for good at this point? Well, it is a genuine concern. I mean, Ukrainian officials really hoped, of course, that there would be a successful counteroffensive during 2023 that would really retake a large part of these lands, if not all of it, then certainly those that have been occupied since February uh, 2022. But that has, of course, stalled at the front line. Um, it's clearly quite difficult for the Ukrainians to break through the Russian front lines. So uh, the longer this dispute over aid goes on, uh, the more concern there will be in Kiev about the extent to which they really have a realistic prospect of regaining these territories uh, in the short term. That's David Lewis, professor at the University of Exeter. His piece, The Quiet Transformation of Occupied Ukraine, is out now in Foreign Affairs magazine. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. California's governor has shot down an attempt to put an age restriction on tackle football. Supporters say the less exposure that children have to tackle football, the better. But the hits that come from playing could lead to risks of developing CTE, a degenerative disease caused by repeated head impacts. It's been found in the brains of hundreds of former football players, including those who stopped playing after high school. But even in a mostly blue state like California, limiting tackle football for kids may be off-limits for politicians. Cap Radio's Kate Wolf brings us this report. It's January, and tackle football season for kids here in Sacramento ended a few months ago. In the off-season, some of the kids from the team are trying out 7-on-7, a version of touch football with no tackling. 12-year-old Kainoa Navarrete hasn't played before. I played flag football, something like it, but this is fun. Navarrete has been playing tackle football since he was six. He says tackle is an outlet for his feelings, but he takes the hits too. I do get worried a lot. When was the last time you were worried about your head? Probably like a month ago, like in games, because sometimes I get hit in the head a lot and it kind of stings like a headache. Navarrete and some of the other kids have dreams of playing college ball and then going pro. Fourth grader Waylon Parker's big brother just got a full-ride football scholarship to Washington State. 
Parker also started tackle when he was six. When you start hitting people, your head could be hurting like a lot, a lot. And you've experienced that? Yeah. Even with the helmet on? Mm-hmm. Both kids say they've taken big hits. Navarrete says he had a concussion last year that hurt for a week. Those are a concern, but it's also the regular sub-concussive knocks, ones that don't reach the level of overt symptoms that neurologists are worried about. Stella Lagarda is a practicing pediatric neurologist. When kids get hit on the head, or in her words, get their bell rung, she says they'll often brush it off. They go back to play, and if they keep ringing their bell and ringing their bell, constantly, that's going to, over time, accumulate. She says in the brain, nerve cells are taking that wear and tear and not having time to heal. In some people, it also begins a ripple effect, causing tau proteins in the brain to build up, form clumps, and interfere with brain functioning. This is a sign of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. CTE has been found in the brains of hundreds of former NFL players, as well as those who've only played in amateur leagues. Lagarda says people might only see cognitive impairment and behavioral changes years later. That's probably also the reason why parents think it's okay. These changes happen after the kids grow up and leave home. In 2018, California Democratic Assembly member Kevin McCarty brought a bill forward to stop tackle football for kids below 12. It didn't get far. Last year, he reintroduced it. It was more measured this time, phasing tackle for kids under 12 out over the course of four years. In the past decade, participation in tackle has dropped, especially in wealthier and more liberal areas. At the same time, participation in flag football has grown, almost 40 percent for kids under 12 since 2015. Here's McCarty at a recent hearing for the bill. I love my, my 49ers, and hopefully after 29 years, come back and win a Super Bowl ring this year. So you can love football and love our kids and try to protect our kids at the same time. But many of those kids and their parents came out to the state capitol in force to push back against the bill. Hi, my name is Perry Sellers, and I play for the Toll Bridges my name Junior is Tyler, and I oppose this bill. I strongly oppose this bill. The proposal passed out of that committee, but then, before the bill was even scheduled for a floor vote, California Governor Gavin Newsom stopped it in its tracks. He said he wanted to strengthen safety in youth football, but an outright ban wasn't the answer. I'm not surprised at all. Robin Swanson is a Democratic strategist. Can you imagine what a political dumpster fire this would be? Not just for not just for California, but for Democrats everywhere. She says Newsom is a nationally recognized Democratic leader and a surrogate for President Biden. She says in an election year, he needs to be careful. Every time we would talk about Republicans banning books, they would come back and talk about Democrats banning football. Swanson says Newsom is politically astute and realizes football could be the next frontier in the culture wars. It's just terrible timing on their part. I don't know that there's ever a good time to take on football in America, but I think this bill is a little too far ahead of its time. Tackle football territory may be too risky for politicians, but it's still where kids are playing. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wolf in Sacramento, California. And on the subject of sports injuries and children's health, new research takes a look at racial disparities in pediatrics. The findings include several examples of how differently children of color in the U.S. are treated by the medical community when compared to white children. NPR's Maria Godoy reports. The disparities in kids' health care exist whether you're looking at care for newborns or surgery for appendicitis 
or getting a diagnosis and treatment for developmental disabilities, or ADHD. So says Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris, who oversaw the research. No matter where you look, there are disparities in care for pretty much every racial and ethnic group that's not white. Hurd-Garris is a researcher at Northwestern University and a pediatrician at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. She and her colleagues reviewed dozens of recent studies examining the quality of care children receive. She says there are lots of examples of inequalities across specialties, whether it's longer wait times to be seen or getting diagnostic imaging or getting basic pain management. When a kid breaks a bone, when they have appendicitis, when they have a migraine, they should be treated for their pain. But the findings showed kids of color were less likely to get treatment for their pain than their white peers. The researchers only looked at studies of children who had health insurance. And so we cannot blame the lack of insurance of causing these disparities. Researchers say the causes of these disparities are wide-ranging, but they're ultimately rooted in structural racism, including unequal access to healthy housing and economic opportunities, unconscious bias among healthcare providers, and disparate policing of kids of color. Dr. Monique Jindal is an assistant professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and one of the lead authors of the review. She says addressing these disparities may ultimately require sweeping policy changes. It's really understanding how each of those sectors are intertwined within each other and how we cannot have quality or equitable health care without addressing each of the policy issues within the other sectors of society. That could take a long time. In the meantime, Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris says healthcare providers should check their own biases. Even if you are the most progressive provider, you're still going to have blinders and making sure you're checking on those, challenging those, and even reviewing your own chart. The findings appear in the journal The Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. Maria Godoy, NPR News.